Hello and welcome to the podcast for Christ Community Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. This is our message from Sunday morning, November 5th, 2023 by Tom Job from the book of Romans in chapter 16. And we had a slight recording malfunction where we missed the very beginning of this message and we drop in where Tom is talking about eulogies that people give at funerals. There was one town, there was two brothers, and they owned the only, it was kind of a factory in the town. Everybody in the town worked for this factory. It was kind of a factory town. It was run by these two brothers. Everybody hated them because they were super stingy and mean and hard with everyone. And they, and you know, they were just as as tight as they could be with their money, and everybody just kind of hated them. And so one of them died, and the brother went to the pastor of the biggest Baptist church in the town where lots of people went. And he said, Pastor, if in this funeral you'll say my brother was a saint, I will build you a new sanctuary. And he was like, okay, what do I do? And he just started praying about it. And he came up with an answer. And during the eulogy, he just said, okay, so we all know that our dear beloved brother was just the meanest. And you all know that. You all know he made your life miserable and We've all hated him, right? We all hated him. He was terrible. Compared to his brother here, though, he was a saint. So, but, um, so, so, but there's this, so, so, um, so I, so I thought I was, I thought I was done with this thing last week. And so I thought, oops. So what I did this week was I just read through Romans, just Romans 16, this thing where he's greeting everybody. And I just started to think like, what did Paul admire about them? Because there were certain things that he pointed out. And he kind of did it over and over. And there were certain kind of traits about people. that, Like there was nobody, um, greet Chophinius, who tells the funniest jokes, or greet so-and-so, because they're such a great cook. There was none of that. But there were certain things that he, it's just, this is what I admire about them. This is kind of what I admire about people. And one thing that he said four times about four different people is greet so-and-so because they work so hard in the Lord. They are hard workers. And I really admire that about people who work hard for Jesus. And you know, I get that. I mean, one of my favorite people, like in all of the world, I just, he's just a person who has always been to me kind of infinitely interesting. And there's a guy, there's a British guy who wrote a 250-page um, dissertation on Dwight L. Moody. And um, I was trying to read the PDF. It was super, but it's coming out in a book in February, and I'm super excited about it. But D.L. Moody was a guy who came from the country of uh, Chicago, and I mean, um, the country of uh, in Connecticut. He went to about the third grade, and he couldn't really spell anything. And he went to Boston to work for an uncle who had a shoe store, and he came to know Jesus. And then he went to Chicago, and he was. And the most ambitious, and Chicago was exploding in the 1850s, and he had the ambition to save, by the time he was 30, $80,000, which was well over a million dollars. And he was going to be a millionaire, but he came, he came to know Jesus, and he just, all he cared about was serving Jesus. He went on to become one of the a worldwide evangelists, and before he died at 60 years old, he... Um, 
preach the message of Jesus before amplification to over 100 million people. And he was just amazing. But he just, his uncle Zebulon said one time he came back from Chicago to Northfield to visit his, his mom. And he said, and this was before he had become anybody or anybody knew him. And he was riding this sleigh through the, through the um, over this hill. And he said his face was as red. He was a big dude. And his face was as red as red flannel. And he said to me, good morning, Uncle Zebulun. Have you thought about what you're going to do for the Lord Jesus Christ today? And he said, well, if you come to my house, maybe we could talk about it. I don't have time for that. I have to do things for the Lord Jesus Christ. But think about what I told you. And I mean, that was just like Dale Moody. I mean, he was just like, and so his uncle said, he said he was crazy. And he called him Crazy Moody. And people called him that for a long time. But so there's a lot of people um, that's kind of, that's the way they are. Okay, and Paul admired that, but for some people, it's a problem. You know what I mean? Like, there's some people who just, they work so hard, they never sleep. This one guy said he was in a coffee shop, and they had a mug that said, sleep is for the week. And his friend was talking to a pastor friend of theirs who said, you need to really kind of slow down a little bit. And he said, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And in three weeks, he was. You know, because everybody needs... Like lots of sleep, it's good. The way, if you're sleep deprived, so people who are sleep deprived are, let's see, seven times more likely to deal with depression, 10 times more likely to deal with anxiety. And um, people that are sleep deprived, like that are trying to live on five hours of sleep a night, they, ha they so they're, um, they're 60, 60%, they have 60% stronger emotional reactions to all situations. And your emotions cause you to release more cortisol in your brain, which is kind of like your fight or flight. And that keeps you from sleeping. And so people that are sleep deprived kind of live in a constant state of emergency mode. And it's like, there was one pastor and he was talking to a guy that was kind of his spiritual coach, you know? And he said, so how's it been going? He said, oh, I've been so busy, just, you know, just, whoa, I've been super busy. I've been chasing my headlights, you know what I mean? And just kind of making all those jokes. And his coach didn't really think it was very funny. And after a while of listening to it, he said, I have one verse for you. And he said, okay, what is it? And he said, it's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, you know? But Paul just thought it was the coolest, you know, just like when people are working hard all the time. And another thing that he really, they comments on a lot when he's saying, say hello to this person, say hello to that person, is he really liked it when people opened their home, like their entire house was was open to people being in it all the time. Like Priscilla and Aquila, they were one. And so like the way to understand it is like, that's really how, in the beginning of Christianity, it's how Christianity rolled. Like it was, they didn't have buildings and they were always meeting, they had their worship services in people's houses. And so usually it was people who were well off. They could, they had a house with the, that could, you know, you could put 100, 120 people in it. And like, so 
And it's so interesting, like when you think about Priscilla and Aquila, one thing that Paul says about them is that they, they like him, were Jewish people. But all of a sudden, they believed in Jesus and they found themselves in a movement of people and a house full of people who weren't like them, like who weren't Jewish like them. And it was completely new for them. And they found themselves with people who were either slaves, some of them slaves. In this list, there's a lot of people that are either slaves or ex-slaves. And they had always been free, and they had never really known anybody like that, and they had never really known non-Jewish people, and they had never really known, like, um, you know, people from other countries. They, They had never really known poor people. And so now their life was filled up with people who were completely unlike them. And the only thing that kept them together was Jesus. The fact that Jesus was risen from the dead. And that's why my life is now filled with a family of people who are ex-slaves or different ethnicities than mine or different socioeconomic things than mine. There's a, we used to have a church, well, in one of our churches when we were in Milan, Italy, had people from 17 different countries in it. It was really awesome, except it wasn't quite as economically diverse because it was mostly people who were middle to like lower class, low, lower economic people. But one church that we had, Al Nutrioni and I, we had it together. It was an English language church on, on Monday night. And that had people from like, like everywhere. Like there were undocumented, people who were undocumented immigrants who loved Jesus, mostly from the Philippines. And then there were, there was Arabs. There was an Arab guy named Michele. He wasn't a Christian, but he, but he came all the time. And I remember one time when uh, church was over, but everybody was up walking and talking and all that stuff. And he was picking up all the Bibles that everybody had left in the pews and on the floor and putting them back in the little pew holders in the place that we met. And before he'd put them back in the pew holders, he would kiss them. There was, there was a guy that used to come. His name was Franz Mayer, and he was the chief technician for Steinway Pianos. And, when, and he used to travel and tune and care for the piano of Arthur Rubinstein and Van Clyburn, but especially Vladimir Horowitz. And whenever Vladimir Horowitz was at La Scala Opera House either making a record or doing a concert, if Franz was free, he'd come down to the English language church and he had a million stories and we always would let him preach. There was another guy named Ben Hefner who was was the leading, he was Canadian, but he was the leading Wagnerian tenor in the world. And whenever he would be singing one of those Wagnerian things at La Scala Opera House, if he was free on Sunday night, he'd always come because he loved Jesus and we would always get him to sing. And if he sang, there's a thing in opera, like when you sing your big number and everybody thought it was amazing, they would cheer and clap and cheer and clap and cheer and clap and the opera couldn't continue until they went back and did it. And people would yell, encore, encore, which means do it again. And that's where you get the word encore. And so, but anyway, and they would stop the whole opera until they went back and he would sing that thing again. So when he would sing in our church and he would sing the Lord's Prayer and we would scream and yell and scream and yell and the worship service would stop until he went back and sang it again. That's what, and so, but it was just like filled with people. There was one place, their, their home was just filled with people who were different and um, different than they had ever, and it took, it took people a while to get used to, now I belong to this family of really different people. There was a place in, in Galatians chapter two where Paul said, Peter, so Peter struggled with this a little bit and in the sense that he was Jewish, now he was in this movement that included people that weren't Jewish and he had never really hung around them before. And there were, in one community that was growing and Peter showed up there and at a certain point, he was only talking to his Jewish friends and ignoring the other people and Paul said, I confronted him to his face 
because it was a denial of the gospel, which tells us that God loves everyone and that Jesus died for everyone. And whoever believes in him, no matter where they're from, no matter what ethnicity I am, what ethnicity they are, how much money they have or don't have, they are my brother and sister in Christ Jesus. There's some things I think about the New Testament that unless you understand that that's how they met in homes like that, you can't really, um, you can't really understand it. Like there's a lot of places, there's some certain places and things that Paul wrote where he was talking to women and he was telling women that they need to dress in within modesty, in a modest way. And people have always thought that that means that certain people need to dress in a certain way so that it would keep other people from thinking things they shouldn't think. And people have grown up feeling like they were responsible for, you know, for other people's sin. And the idea that a person is responsible for other people's sin in the New Testament is not a thing. Everybody is responsible for their own thoughts and for their own heart. But what Paul is talking about when he talks about women dressing modestly, he says, don't wear all that jewelry that you own and don't wear those expensive clothes that you wear because you're in a family of people who don't have the kind of money you do and you're making them feel like they're less than. There's a place in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is kind of a difficult chapter to understand, but it talks about how when they would meet in these homes like this and women, women had a custom in the Greco-Roman society of wearing a veil over their head. And people have gotten the impression that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's talking about how their husbands are like they're like over them or something, or they're, it's a sign of submission to their husbands. But there was one, there's one um, scholar that I've been reading, and just a PhD in New Testament Greek, and what she said was that when women in Greco-Roman culture in Corinth wore a veil on their head, it was, a, it was a sign of respect and dignity. In other words, I'm a person of respect, I'm a person of dignity, I'm wearing this to church, don't come to church to check me out, I am not available, and I don't come here for that. Um, but in Greco-Roman society, a woman who was a, either a slave or an ex-slave, a woman who was divorced, a woman who was a prostitute or had been a prostitute, did not, was not allowed to wear a veil over her head. But in chapter, in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said, he said, a woman, the way it says, a woman ought to have a sign of authority over her head. And this woman, woman said, if you'll notice, that little phrase, a sign of, is not in there. It's been added. It's not in the Greek text. What Paul is saying is, a woman ought to have authority over her own head. And if she is in a church community, even if she's been an ex-slave, even if she's been an ex-prostitute, even if she's been whatever, she's the one who has the right to say, I am wearing a veil because I am a woman of dignity and honor. Mm. So, there you go. But anyway, 
Anyway, so Paul, he loved people that opened their house. Like, I love the fact that they opened their house. But, you know, some people think you have to have boundaries a little bit of, you know, just having everybody in your house. I've told you all a million times, but there was a young man that came to know Jesus in Milan named Paolo, and he had done every drug in the world. I mean, he had done everything by the time he was 18, and he accepted Jesus, and his parents kicked him out of his house. So it's like, drugs, this, that. Now, Jesus, you're out. And so they kicked him out, and he had nowhere to go, and he came to live with Tina and me, and he was weighed about 100. 20 and and he's about five feet tall and he had so many questions we were always talking he slept on the couch and one night we were talking about the trinity all day long Paolo and I talking about the trinity and so we went to bed about 12 and there's a little knock on the door and it was Paolo and he used to sleep in his tidy whities so he said I have one more question and he came and sat up in our bed in his tidy whities and asked his question and I answered it and he said okay buonanotte and he went back into the living room, and Tina looked at me and said, did that really just happen? <laughs> you know, but it's, I guess you have to have boundaries, but Paul, but Paul he, he loved people, he loved people that worked hard, and he loved people that opened their house, and he, loved, and, he, and he loved people that risk their life. He talks about that a lot, like you risk your life. I love people that just do that life-risking thing, and just, they'll, give, they'll just give their life, like if you need if you know, if is there somebody that would cook a meal? I'll cook a meal. Is there somebody that would make cookies for Chicago? I'll make cookies. Is there someone that will risk their life? He just loved it. He loved that there would be people that would be willing to risk their life. And you're kind of like, isn't it a little bit extreme? Aren't you a little? You aren't you a little bit extreme? And he was extreme. Paul was a lot. Um. He was an extreme person. He admired things about other people that he kind of valued in himself. He was a hard worker. He was a person who was willing to risk his life. He was on a ship 12 times in the New Testament, and three of those times wound up in the water before he wound up on the land. He, he would walk, he would walk to tell people about Jesus. When you calculate how far he walked to tell people about Jesus, he walked all the way from New York City, the equivalent of New York City, to Los Angeles to tell people about Jesus. And then from Los Angeles all the way back to New York City. And then from New York City all the way to Los Angeles. He was just an extreme guy. And the reason is when you think about the letter that he wrote, he's like, I'm extreme. I know I'm a lot, but I have a message that's extreme, like the message of the good news. He said, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 18. It's the power of God to salvation, and it's an extreme message. It's the message of messages. And people have to understand it. And I have to explain it to them. Sometimes I've heard people say about St. Francis that St. Francis said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. He never said that. That wasn't attributed to him until four centuries after he was dead. And he didn't believe it. 
He believed that the gospel always takes words, and he preached it to people every day, and you have to explain it. And Paul said, okay, so this message is extreme because people are lost. He said, the God, okay, so he starts out, I have some extremely good news to tell you. I'm going to start telling you that in chapter 3, verse 21. Before I get there, I, have, I need to tell you some extremely bad news, and it's in chapter 118 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And he said, the extremely bad news is God is holy. God is super holy. He is super different from us. The Hebrew word for holy is the word Kadesh. It's in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah went, he got to go to heaven and he said, I saw the Lord and angels were saying, holy, holy, holy Kadesh, Kadesh. It was like lightning cracking everywhere. God is extremely different from us. One of the ways he's different, that God is holy and we're not, is that God is love and that God created us to know and to love him. And all human beings have said, I don't want that. I don't want a relationship with God. I don't want to know God. I don't want to know love. God is love. And human beings have said, I don't love love. I don't want it. And he said, so the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous. The wrath of God? I thought you said that God is love. Yes. One thing he says about the wrath of God is that God has said to people, he's just given them over, given them over, given them over. Because God is love. and You can't force people to love you if they don't. So I'm just going to let you go. It's just like the father said to his prodigal son who said, give me my inheritance. He said, you can have it. Go. Go down that road. And we'll see how it goes. And, you know, Paul said, he said, if you just look at humanity, like sec human sexuality, like God created in chapter one, he starts talking about sex. Just like, look at how far people have gone. God created sex to be loving and giving. And people have turned it into something that's lusting and it's taking. And he said, in verse 29 and 30, he has another list. He said, people are wicked. Like, look at humanity. They're wicked. They're greedy. They're murderous. And then he said, and you know what else they are? He said, they're hateful. And then he uses a word that says, they're mean. They're murderous. They're wicked. And they're mean-spirited. And he said, you know what else? They're contentious. It's a word that means to love a quarrel. They don't want to listen to each other. Do you have an opinion that's different from mine? Do you all have an opinion that's different from ours? Could I listen to your opinion? People just like to fight. They just like to quarrel. And they have, there's, they have a disposition. They said people have a nasty disposition. And they gossip about people. It's a word that means whisper. They call people names. They're arrogant, they brag all the time, and they insult people all the time. They're insulting. And people say, I know, but we love that stuff. And God says, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. It's big. People are that way because they don't love love. Jesus died for that. He died for our immoral ways and our malicious words. But that's what he came to do, that Almighty God became a human being to pay for us. Paul loved a man that would risk his life to do something that you know you have the possibility of giving your life for. Jesus came to give his life. He came for the purpose 
of giving his life. Paul loved a hard worker, and Jesus was the one who said, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And the work that he gave, that the Father gave the Son to do, was to become a human being and to live a beautiful life and then to offer it and then to be killed and then to be, to be tortured and to be nailed. And in three hours of the Gospels consistently say, it was global darkness. Mark said the sun stopped shining. And in three hours of global darkness, Almighty God, who had became a human being, in an incomprehensible compression of eternity into three hours, paid for all of the guilt and all of the shame of all of us, of our immoral ways and our malicious words. And he said, it's done. I did it. And he rose from the dead. And Paul said, and he offers to whoever wants it. And this is the great news. A, comp all, a complete forgiveness of everything you've ever done, do, or will do. A future with him. Paul loved a person who opened his home for a few hours a week. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and has opened his home to an innumerable multitude that no one could number forever and forever and forever and forever. And all you have to do is to say, I need it. He says in chapter, in chapter 8, he said, if you'll confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And he gives you a new future with him forever. He gives you a new present. He comes to live inside of you and never leave you. He gives you a new past. His righteousness is given to you, and all of, your, all of our past, all of the mess we made, is completely wiped away. And God looks at us as if we've been as kind and as sweet as Jesus Christ himself. Isn't it so? Okay, that's the message. It's extreme. But isn't it? Isn't it the answer to the problems of this world? Like, what if all of a sudden, you know how they tried that little emergency thing on your cell phone a couple of weeks ago where everybody got an emergency thing and they tested it out? What if everybody in the world on their cell phone got an emergency message that says, the King of Kings is coming? You're not ready for this. You are not ready for this. And everybody in the world just felt like, I'm super not ready for this. I have said malicious things, and I have had immoral ways, and I'm not ready for this. And then you got another message and said, okay, so here are four things that you need to know, that, all my, that God loves you, but you've made a gigantic mess. You've done a million things that are wrong, and nobody can pay for it, and nobody can cleanse their own heart, and blah, blah, blah. That's why Jesus came. Almighty God became a human being to teach us how to live, to show us how to live. Nobody's ever followed any of that, he came primarily to die and pay for us, which he has done, and he offers you a complete forgiveness of everything you've ever done, do, or will do, 
place in his heart and a place in his family and a place in his home forever. And all you have to do is say, I need this, I want it, and I take it. And what if everybody said, I super, super need this. I'm going to take it. And everybody in the world took it. And then in Romans chapter 4, he said, people who take it, it makes you happy. And all of a sudden, everybody in the world said, blessed is the man whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed, it's a word that means happy, is the one in whom the Lord will not impute sin. And everybody was super, super happy. And at the end of Romans 4, it says, all you got to do is believe it. We got to believe it without wavering. Believe it without, without going back and forth. Be strengthened in your heart, fully persuaded that what God has promised, he's able also to do. And I believe that. I'm going to believe that with all the powers that I have. And then in chapter 5, he said, because you have that, you can go to God with all your problems. So I'm going to go to God with all my problems. And the love of God is poured out in your heart. And everybody in the world felt the love of God poured out in their heart. And then in chapter 8, he said, you need to know that God's making everything work together because he's making you like Jesus. What if everybody in the world was being made like Jesus at one time? Because if God's going to take us home to his home forever, I really wouldn't want to go like this. So we do need some work. So everybody's saying, I want to be like Jesus. And in chapter 12, everybody in the world said, and because you have done this for me, I give my life to you. I give my heart to you. And in chapter 13, Everybody said, I'm going to pay the debt that I owe to every human being in this world to love them. We're done, right? The problems of the world are solved. The only thing is, Paul says in chapter 10, this is the message. It's an extreme message that can transform people in extreme ways. But they can't believe it if they've never heard it. And they'll never hear it unless somebody takes it to them. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here to do. That's why we're in the world. We're not in this world to win fights. We're in the world to win hearts to Jesus Christ. Um, I've always felt that every victory in a culture war is a defeat for the kingdom of God. Because we're here to tell people about, about Jesus, to love them, and to tell them about him. And we're not really risking our life to do it, because we've believed in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. D.L. Moody said, you're going to read one day that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe it? I will never be more alive than I, have, than I will be on that day. And we're not really going out of our way to open our homes to people so they can hear our message because our houses don't belong to us. They belong to him, and this world is not my home. I haven't been there yet, but I can't 
really wait to go. And we don't really have to work hard to tell people about Jesus, to bring people into the kingdom of God. Because actually, the hard work is work that we can't do. There's a place where Paul said, you know, I sowed the seed. Apollos waters it, but I can't make it grow. God is the one who makes it grow. There's a place in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul said, if our gospel is veiled, it's if, if people don't get it, it's because the devil has blinded people. But the God who said, let there be light, has made his light shine in our hearts so that we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is the same thing that God did on the very first day in Genesis chapter one, when the earth was covered in darkness and chaos, and he said, let there be light. And there was light goes into hearts that are chaotic and empty and says, let there be light. And there's light. I got a text the other day from a friend of mine. He said, I have to give the crosstalk at Windy Gap at a Young Life camp at, at, at about 8.30 tonight. Will you pray for me? And I said, Tim, I need to tell you something. There are going to be kids in that room that have an appointment with Jesus Christ that was established before the earth was ever created. And for some of those kids, tonight is the night. It's tonight, Tim. It's going to happen tonight. You know, deal, one deal, oh my gosh, I am so lost. I don't even know where I'm talking. But anyway, I'm going to get to the end in like one minute. But they, so, but so, deal, Moody, so, deal, so, deal, Moody. So he was trying to save when he was like 23 in Chicago, and he was trying to become a millionaire in seven years, and he was on his way. But he started, there was these kids, and he loved you. There were these kids that lived in, in this place. It was just slums. It was kids who were, they were, their parents were what they called dope fiends. They were drug addicts and prostitutes. And these kids, it was thousands of kids. And he started reaching, it was the worst slums of America. And he started reaching out to these kids in an old saloon. I've talked to Young Life people, Young Life Regional, about people who did Young Life before Young Life was ever invented. And one of them was Deal Moody. And he would gather these kids and they would sing songs and they would play games in a bar, in a saloon. And then, and he would give them a five minute talk about Jesus. And then he would do it again, songs and games and, and a five minute talk about Jesus. He got up to 1,500 kids. There was a, but there was a guy that used to, that worked with the girls, you know, and, and he kind of had a, a little campaigner group of these girls. And, and he told D.L. Moody, I have to leave. I have, I have my, something in my lungs and the doctor told me it will kill me. And um, so I'm going to have to go home to my mother and die. And uh, Moody said, can we go around and talk to the girls that are in your Bible study group and you can just tell them. So the guy was getting weaker. And, he, and so one by one, he and Deal Moody started to go and visit these girls. And the man would tell them, I'm going home to die. And, I need, and Deal Moody had never seen anybody do this. He said, I need to ask you, have you become a Christian? And the girls said, um, I'm not sure yet. And he said, would you like to? And he explained the message and said, all you have to do is ask him. And she said, yes. 
And I said, let's pray. And he asked her to become a Christian, and she did. And the next day, he went with Moody, and Moody said, I have never, I didn't know you could do that. And he said, the next day, they went to the next girl, and they went to all the girls, and he asked her face to face, would you like to accept Jesus? And they said, yes. And they would. And when he left on the train, all those girls came, and they held hands, and he prayed for them, and then they prayed for him. And D.L. Moody said, that first day and that week changed my life forever. I left the shoe business, and I never looked back. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> anyway, Lord Jesus, could, we, could you give us a supernatural perception of the extremity of the message that we have. How extreme it is, how sweet, how extremely hopeful, how extremely liberating, how extremely renewing, how extremely needy this world is of the message we love. And if there's someone here who has never accepted this gift, would you encourage them to do that today and say, I need this, Lord Jesus. I want it. What did you make me for? What are you calling me to? What do you have in store? I go there with you. I don't want ordinary, not just the same old pattern. They live for the momentary. I want a life that matters. I don't want ordinary, not just the same old pattern. They live for the Just the same old pattern They live for the moment
I go 